Welcome to the Memorabilia Podcast, the podcast that takes one of our many albums and provides a deep dive into how it came into being, the people behind it, the songs, and latterly, what was happening in the UK at the time of release. As ever, I'm here with my ever-dependent, beautiful co-host, my wife Kate. Ever-dependent? Ever-dependent, okay. Kate. Dependable, please. Ever-dependable. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I told you she was taking a mic out. <laughs> And we also have a third voice on today. Can we give a big warm welcome to Simon? Hello, how are you? He's a man who knows his way around a few album track listings or two. So he is coming in to add a, another voice to this big episode today. We are covering Nirvana's Nevermind, a seminal album from the early 90s. So I feel, Simon, I feel like you're here to bring the knowledge. I don't know about that. Time will tell. <laughs> so, without further ado, we will get on with it. Okay, Simon, give us a little bit of an intro to yourself. Give us uh, 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 how old you are, where you are in the world, <laughs> what kind of music you're Inside into. Inside leg, shoes high. Well, um, I am down the south of the country, as you can probably tell by my accent. Um, I'm 48, about to turn 49. Uh, I've got a varied range of sort of musical interests um, from the 60s. Um, probably through to about the year 2000, um, when music started to lose its appeal for a lot of us. So, <laughs> and there was the small matter of like the babies came, yeah. and you just never had time to music yeah. for a while. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a few good bands still appearing, and that, and uh, yeah, sort of a, a live music venue, smaller venues, and stuff like that, I quite like as well. So, uh, yeah, well, um, there's a few few hidden gems out there. So have you got any small music venues near you? Um, so I tend to go down to Southampton. Um, there's a couple there. You've got the 1865 Club, the Joiners, which is quite a, a famous venue in Southampton. Have you? Well, bizarrely enough, there's a bit of an urban legend around about uh, Nirvana and um, the Joiners because it's it's been hosted to quite a few famous acts over the years. But there's a an urban myth that the that Nirvana played there when I was an up and coming band, and the amount of people that claim that they're at that gig, well, you'd struggle to fit them all in St Mary's Stadium. But um, they never actually <laughs> played there. So if you ever meet anyone from Salem who claim they was at the, at the gig at the Joiners, they're uh, they're telling a porky. So yeah. <laughs> very good and, and just as a bit of background um kate and i met simon and his his gorgeous wife jen on our honeymoons we were in the the maldives yeah. which would have been 2003 is that right so it's actually uh 20 years yeah 20 years ago i'm gonna get the i'm gonna get the obligatory uh Ian Prowse mentioning here because you were the uh, gentleman that uh, introduced me to to the genius that is Ian Prowse and and Pele and Amsterdam. So, yes. Anyway, we better talk about what we're here for, which is uh, Nirvana's Nevermind. So, a bit of background on the album. It was released on the 24th of September 1991. Uh, the album has 12 tracks, 12 official tracks. And when we get to it, one secret or hidden track. Um, sales is one of the best-selling albums in the history of modern music, over 30 million album sales. Uh, it was Nirvana's second album. Their first album was Bleach. Have any of you heard Bleach? No. 
Yeah, I think so, but probably not listen to it as an album. I def I lived with people who owned it, <laughs> which would suggest that I would have heard it. So I think it did a bit better from reading. It did a bit better in the UK than it did did in the States. It did did okay. Um, it's not bad actually. I listened to it this week just as preparation. I'd not heard it. I'd heard a couple of songs because there was a couple off um, the Unplugged album. I'm sure most people have heard Nirvana Unplugged that they played from Bleach, didn't they? About about a girl being one of them. Um, so that was released two years before uh, Nevermind in June '89. Sold 40,000 copies in the US, didn't chart. Um, Geffen, who were the um, major label that Nirvana signed for for Nevermind, did put out an international re release following the success of Nevermind, which uh, peaked at 89 on the Billboard 200, which is the name of the US charts. And it did go on to sell 1.9 million copies. So it is still um, Nirvana's original label called Sub Pop. And it's still their best-selling album of all time, which is pretty impressive feat. There are other bands on Sub Pop are the likes of Mudhoney, Soundgarden, uh, Beach House, Mogwai, Sleater Kinney. You know them? Nope. Nope. No. Um, who else? Fleet Foxes? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Vaseline's as well. I think they covered a Vaseline song, didn't they? Nirvana is also on that unplugged. So yeah, so Sub Pop were essentially uh, two guys in Seattle who admittedly, um, they said they didn't really know what they were doing when they set this record label up. They went out and saw live bands and the ones that they liked, they decided to um, sign them to their label, essentially. Uh, they were struggling financially during the original recording of, um, of Nevermind. And that's how the um, contract eventually went to to Geffen, because Nirvana um, decided why why do we want to be with a label that's going to become a, a subsidiary of, of Geffen Records, which is what Geffen had suggested to Sub Pop, uh, and they went there um, and signed directly. So I had, I had a quick look at the the money involved and um, the contract that they were on with Sub Pop. It was pretty straightforward and, and, and not that much money, really. 1989, $6,000. 1990, $12,000. And in 91, $24,000. And that's total between the three of, three of the band members. So not a lot of money, really, is it? Um, now, when they signed for Geffen, they had an advance of $287,000. But they had to pay that back. And 20 to 25% of that went to the management. Uh, Sub Pop got 75000 for the deal. Um, but they were smart enough to add on a percentage. They, um, they agreed to 2% of all the sales of Nevermind and Insecticide, which Geffen released, I think, about a year, a year and a bit after Nevermind, which was all kind of the B-sides and rarities. So. So yeah, so Sub Pop did all right out of uh, out of Nevermind, and basically it saved their label, and they're, they're still going today. So, so yeah, that was that. Um, do either of you know what the album was originally going to be called? Oh, um... no. Well, it was it was in reference. Basically, he's in the habit of asking these questions like they're rhetorical <laughs> now because I never know the answer and he always does. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was in reference to uh, the people that they thought would kind of um, be into their record and buy their record. Um, 
Sheep. Is the, Sheep. Oh the, yes, I did that. Is the, the original name of the album. So, um, so yeah, and of course, why uh, didn't they go with that then? Um, I think they got fed up of it by the time it came to the release of Nevermind because it was like about eighteen months in the making. The record, um, Dave Grohl, sorry, not Dave Grohl. Kurt Cobain said to Chris Novacelic. I'm not very good at saying that guy's name. It has to be said. <laughs> yeah, uh, he said to him, "I'm thinking about changing the name to uh, to Nevermind. What do you think?" And uh, Chris said, "Yeah, that's a that's a good idea because he thought it kind of um, was a good um, reference point to how he felt about life, and he liked the fact that it was um, grammatically incorrect as well." So, so yeah, uh, Chris and. Um, Kurt knew each other from Aberdeen, which is the place where they kind of grew up, which is about 100 miles, I think, south of Seattle, where they eventually formed Nirvana. So they were um, originally in a, in a couple of different bands uh, together, one of which was called The Sellouts. Um, believe it or not, they were a covers band for Credence Clearwater Revival. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, so th there is um, stuff online. I don't know that it's on YouTube, but um, you can find recordings of them covering Bad Moon Rising, which is a, a brilliant yeah. song, but not what you'd really expect from uh, the seeds of Nirvana. Uh, but there you go. So, yeah, they, they finally got a drummer, a guy called Chad Channing, um, who is the guy who's drums on Bleach. It was kind of during the, the um, inter intermediate period after... The original recordings of of Nevermind because they did record I think eight tracks with Chad Channing. Uh, they went down to Butch Vig's studio in um, Madison, Wisconsin, uh, and Butch Vig was someone that they decided they wanted to work with. He, he wasn't that well known as a producer. Um, he's a guy who you might know as a drummer from Garbage as well, um, but he'd done work with a band called Killdozer, which they liked so. They went to his studio, recorded eight tracks, one of which was Lithium, but um, Kurt scratched all his voice and uh, he strained it singing Lithium. So they had to stop the recording. And they were supposed to go back a few weeks later. This was in April, 1990. So this was a year before they actually recorded what became Nevermind. Um, so it was kind of, this is what I was saying, it was like 18 months in the making really. Um, during that time as well, Kurt decided that Chad wasn't going to cut it. I don't know, there was a bit of a falling out. He decided he wasn't as professional as they were. And so they decided they wanted to look for another drummer. Uh, I think there was a few in between. I think they had five or six different people that subbed in until eventually um, they'd been to see a band that Dave Grohl was in, a hardcore punk band called Scream. And uh, two weeks after... Chris and Kurt had been to see Scream. They, they disbanded. Dave Grohl phoned uh, someone in Mudhoney and said, do you know anyone who's looking for a drummer? Mudhoney were another band from Seattle, and he said, I happen to know that, that Nirvana are looking for someone. So he called Chris Novacelic, went up to Seattle, and as Chris said, when Dave Grohl joined, everything just fell into place. Um, so yeah, I've got a good story, uh, which I'll save for when we talk about Smells Like Teen Spirit, about um, Dave Grohl and, and what he actually thinks of his own drumming. But I don't know what you guys think from the record, but he 
one thing that he's notable for, he, he bangs those drums hard, doesn't he? He's uh, yeah, he's uh, impressive, impressive. He does, yeah. So then they then they sign for Geffen. Uh, Geffen want to use uh, one of their own producers, but um, Nirvana hold fast and and decide that they want to you know they sell the record level. Look, we want to we want to record with Butch Vig. We're comfortable with him. We're relaxed round round him. He knows the songs. So Geffen relented um, and they booked studio down in LA, a place called uh, I think it's Sun Studios. Um, sorry, Sound City Studios in a place called Van Nuys, which is kind of a, a bit of a warehousey area, not particularly glamorous. But this studio, it's an infamous studio, it was, it's, I don't think it's open anymore. Uh, Fleetwood Mac's Rumours was recorded there, Tom Petty had recorded albums there, Neil Young, you know, loads of bands have recorded some great albums there. Um, and they'd given them a $65,000 budget for, for Nevermind. So... Um, Butchvig himself, he had some interesting comments to make about Kurt Cobain during the uh, the recording. He said that he, would, he was great for an hour, then he'd sit in a corner and say nothing for an hour. I think he was a bit a bit of a typical temperamental rock star, a bit challenging in some ways. But um, but the band said about Butch himself that patience was the key, and um, he did a lot of good stuff. I mean, it, there's a if you listen to the difference between what they recorded in his studios when they were recording with Chad Channing and what he did when they went down to um, Sound City Studios, it's amazing. And um, he makes the record. He absolutely makes that record as well, what it is, the sound that he got out of it. Um, and interestingly, to get down to these studios in LA, they had to put on a few extra gigs. This is how broke they were at the time, Nirvana, which is inconceivable, isn't it, when you, you think about how many... Do you think, because I remember when they when when they started being played at the Thursday Bop, everyone was moshing around to Nirvana. I put my jaw out, like, as you do. <laughs> the whole the whole thing was it was all like low like not overproduced and all all the whole sort of vibe was just kind of yeah. I think I think that's one of the the, the, the brilliance about the album though, because th there are bits in there that are so well produced that you don't realise that he's been clever with his production. But is is yeah? But is there not a different? There's a difference between overproduced and well produced. Well, of course there is. Yeah, yeah, and he's, he's yeah. I'll, I'll get into it when we go into the tracks. But I suppose what I'm challenging is you just say, "Oh, it's really surprising when you think about them now," and I'm just like, "Yeah, but when you think about them then, like even when things were like exploding for them, like it takes a while for the money to come." And... Yeah, I, I think that they had to put these extra gigs on. What I was going to say is just to get down to LA, they had to pay their transport down there. I mean, you know bands. Why is that surprising? No, <laughs> it's just when you think about how many albums it sold and how much, I can't conceive how much money that, that album must have made. I mean, you think about the Airplay alone. I heard someone say the other day that for when you get a song played on the radio, um, and this is now, I think you get something like 20, 30 quid a play. You know, so, I mean, you think about how many times all of them songs must have been played on the radio all over the world on the Airplay alone. That's going to be a quite quite a, quite a substantial amount, isn't it? Definitely, phenomenal amount. And 
you know, even if you say they've only made, I don't know, one, two dollars an album, you know, they sold 30 million albums. Mm. So, yeah, um, the fact that they had to kind of put extra gigs on to pay for their bus fare down to record it, that's what I was kind of saying, really. But I think the other surprising thing is that the um, the record company themselves, Geffen, didn't expect it to be that big of a hit. Um, they pressed just under 50,000 um, copies that they released in the US and another 35,000 to send to the UK because Bleach had done a bit better in the UK. Um, and uh, yeah, those 50,000 copies <laughs> didn't last very long. <laughs> And, and now 100,000 people own one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, so yeah, at this point, that's when they changed the name, as I've said, to, to Nevermind. Um, it was also a metaphor, as well as being a metaphor, Chris thought, for his life. It was also a nod to the, the Sex Pistols. Apparently, Kirk Cobain was a big fan of Nevermind the Bollocks. It was released by the, the Sex Pistols. Um, and, yeah, our next one to talk about the cover. <laughs> we have talked about the cover before because uh it was uh i can't remember it was one or two years ago when uh the guy spencer eldon spencer eldon 2021 it was so it was two years ago yeah did his uh his lawsuit but yeah i mean it was in the news the week that we recorded with david Ann. oh is that what it was yeah, yeah. hi pop dave <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, and we were talking about it then, and just saying like how ridiculous the whole thing was. Yeah, he'd um, he'd missed the statute of limitations or something. He'd he'd had to a claim within ten years of being an adult. He'd left. He was he was over twenty eight. They said he had to make the claim by the time he was twenty eight. Got dismissed or something like that. So yeah, yeah. not so, well, well, in the news. No, I don't think he'd. I don't think he'd lost at the point where we were talking about no, it. Yeah, and to be honest, I lost interest then, and I didn't know he'd lost. So thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> that <was> interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, he claimed that um, it violated the pornography statutes. That was his claim, which is a bit weird because apparently he's got a, a tattoo of the, the album cover on his chest, on him. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I believe he has. Yeah. I think he also, um, I can't, this is remembering back two years, but I'm pretty sure that at the time they were saying that he'd offered for money, and I don't think he was ever given and offered enough money right. to recreate the photo shoot as an adult. Has, he has recreated <laughs> it a few times. No wants to see that, has he? Yeah, I believe so, yeah. I think he had his shorts on, though, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's probably, he wasn't an offer, offered enough money to... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, so if, if, if anybody um, has been living on a different planet and has never seen the cover for Nevermind, because it has to be one of the most recognisable album covers of all time. And I, and I think that's one of the other things, isn't it, now? I mean, when bands release stuff, you don't kind of see posters, you don't go into record shops and look for covers. You know, they're, they're a bit of an afterthought, really, aren't they? Or they just exist on your phone as like a... So, you know what's the word like 2d really, image no like a really tiny thumbnail yeah yeah i mean that's pretty much it isn't it but i mean again the posters and t-shirt sales from this album just must have been insane i mean yeah. so many so many bedrooms i went into around that age you know is it bleach that's the black one with the yeah. sun on it uh, it's not got a sun well, it's got like a, a it's like a silvery image of the band playing i think but it is got a, 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 a 
black background. Oh. I've got this. I was just thinking I saw someone <laughs> with a Nirvana t-shirt on the other day. Oh, there's also the... And um, they were far too young for it to be original. The smiley, the smiley face. That's a song. Oh, it's probably yeah. it's that one. That's a logo. Yeah. I don't know where that's from. Is it one of the singles? Do you know, Simon? I think it is from one of the singles, isn't it? Yeah. So maybe uh, we'll look that up. And I was judging them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unsurprisingly, most of the good stuff from this album were, were Kurt's ideas, and um, the the concept behind the album cover was that you know it just sounded like you said Kate's ideas, and I was like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, <laughs> as I was writing quicker towards the end of researching this, I started writing Kate instead of Kurt. Nice. I'll take that. So I've never compared you to Kurt Cobain before, but tonight. <laughs> tonight, I tonight, baby. I have, yeah. Yeah, so uh, Kurt had been watching a, a documentary on, on water births and was quite fascinated by it. And. Um, quite like the idea of having that on the album cover, but then was either talked out of it or realised it might be a bit too, I don't know, squeamish, not right, I don't know, whatever the word is, and, it, and he decided that he wanted uh, this baby in, in a swimming pool. I mean, it's the, it was the thoughts of a man that had never seen a live birth, let's put it that way. <laughs> quite possibly, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the baby's in the pool uh, chasing a, a $1 bill on a hook. Uh, <clears throat> so yeah very iconic uh, album cover um, and it was um, originally again that they wanted to um, use a, a photograph that existed through something called Stockhouse which I imagine is something like um, Shutterstock or something like that but the image they wanted to use it was going to cost them seven and a half thousand dollars so Geffen paid for this photographer a guy called Kirk Weddle uh, to go to the swimming pool, which was apparently a swimming pool where babies swam. So it was a... <laughs> I love especially... the way that that's like something really alien to you. That's a thing. And you have two children. and You should know that. <laughs> yeah, but it was like, I think the pool was like on its own. Normally when you get baby pools, they're like at the side of a, a proper adult pool, aren't they? No, they're not. <laughs> All right, okay. I thought as well, I did. I did, do remember, didn't they want £7,500 in perpetuity for that photo? It wasn't just a one-off payment. I, I, I believe I, don't, I, don't, I, remember, I remember. I remember that was one of the disputes. That's why they went went and did that alternative shoot, yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe. I, I think if, you, if you're going back to our friend Spencer Eldon, he also quoted the fact that um, they made him be uh, like a sex worker. <laughs> on the album because they're chasing a, a dollar for context though like when there was no digital well not no but there was very little digital media when they were trying to buy this so <clears throat> the concept that this image would become that widely known mm. and uh, photographers and artists had a lot more control over their work I mean, now it's it's a bit of a but it's a bit like the wild west out there with people nicking stuff left, right, and centre, even when it is like watermarked and stuff. So I wouldn't have thought that that sort of level of payment was that unusual. No, it, it probably wasn't. I mean, they were just cutting corners. It didn't it didn't cost them seven and a half in the end. It, it cost them basically to hire this photographer and the photos that he took. I think I don't know whether they actually paid any more money. I think it was just like a one off fee. So. 
but that was what because what later about what like eight nine years later when I was working in marketing yeah that's what we would do so we would have a concept of a picture that we wanted but we didn't buy them from stock because they were too expensive we used to get they like at one point company that I the, the agency that was working for us bought a tortoise and took pictures of the tortoise because <laughs> it was cheaper than buying stock photos of a tortoise. <laughs> and can you imagine that now? You just be like, why would you do that? But that's what they did. Wow. Like then we ended up with the tortoise <laughs> because well, my parents had the tortoise for many years after that. He now lives in a retirement home, so he's a very happy tortoise. But, <laughs> but do you know what I mean? It, it, now that sounds ridiculous because why would you do that? Because there's so much media and so much content out there. But actually, that that was standard practice. That was what you did. <laughs> That's a good story. So I've compared you to Kurt Cobain, and you've compared Spencer Eldon to a tortoise. To a tortoise. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Well, uh, there was a lot of kind of wrangling about the uh, the genitalia of young Spencer as well, because um, Geffen apparently wanted to put a sticker over it, and um, <clears throat> Kurt Cobain said. I'm only having a sticker on there if you write on the sticker. If you're offended by this, you must be a closet paedophile. <laughs> so, so Geffen relented and uh, didn't put a sticker on there. But I, I, I do know that there were quite a few stores that put stickers over it. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I was just having to get more wine. So. That's fine, that's fine. You drink away. Yeah, and then uh, I don't know how many months after, a few months after, they actually went back. The band went back to this pool with the same photographer, and and if you look online, there's some um, there's some shots of the band in the pool, kind of recreating the the images and just doing band shots and, and stuff there, which are, are quite good, really good photographs. Um, how many censored stickers are on those? No, they've well, got not full rep yet. No, not uh, full they've got they've got shorts on, yeah. So. <sighs> So sad, I'm not bothered for looking now. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, yeah, and then on the back cover, we might as well mention the back cover. It looks like there's like this little toy monkey, um, and that apparently is Kurt's toy monkey, and he took that photograph. I don't know whether he, he got the background in there. It looks like it's like a toy monkey walking towards hell to me. But uh, is that flowers or is that a monkey going to hell? I don't know. Maybe it was a reference to uh, the Maybe pic- you need the to pictures. show Simon the picture that you're looking at. So I did show him on okay. I thought, well, I thought yeah. on the on the on the vinyl album it was a picture of I could be wrong, but I thought it was a picture of the three of them. Chris That's on the uh, you're quite correct, Simon, that is on the inner sleeve. All right. Because Yeah. Yeah. The middle finger from our friend Kurt. And they're kind of in a swirly, not quite in um, focus image on the uh, on the inner sleeve so that was it so the album gets released on september the 24th as we said 1991 it debuts uh at number 144 on the billboard 200 um and because of the demand i think i read somewhere where they'd distributed half of their um 50,000 printings whatever it was to the north west of the US, which is obviously where they were from, and they've they got a bit of a groundswell of a following, uh, and they sold out very, very quickly. So they had to put 
all their other album productions on hold just to um, just to go with with Nevermind. Uh, and pretty quickly by November, so probably about a month and a half after it hit the top 40 in the US, and eventually by January the 11th, it hit the number one spot and it was selling 300,000 copies a week. Uh, surprisingly, I didn't know this, it didn't get to number one in, in the UK. So it only peaked at number five. So, which is surprising. If you look at like the singles, we'll talk about the singles in a minute. Um, they did better in the UK than they did in America. So I don't know why it only got to number five. Now, when I chatted to you the other night, Simon, you mentioned that there were some other big hitting albums around at this time. Yeah, it's the, the famous Facebook post, wasn't it? All those albums released within 44 days of each other, wasn't it? There was the, the Guns N' Roses, Usual Illusion 1 and 2, uh, Metallica. Um, Metallica, I think, was the, the Black Album. That's right, yeah. yeah. Pearl Jam, 10. Correct, yeah. Uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Correct. Blood Sex Magic, is it? Blood Sex Magic, yeah, because the magic wasn't spelt as we, from memory, was it? It's not spelled magic how we'd spell it. I think it was a, a, play, a misspelling on purpose. And there was another one as well, wasn't there? Um, I think it was Soundgarden. Soundgarden, sure. that's it, yeah. yeah. Another Seattle band, yeah. They were also on the, the sub-pop label. Yeah. Yeah, so um, how many of those did you have? I had the Guns N' Roses ones. I went to see them on the Usual Illusion tour at Wembley. Um, that, that year, yeah. Um, very good. I think they were supported by Skid Row. And I, I think it was Nine Inch Nails. I remember because it was Wembley Stadium and they were the first support act on. And there was, at the time, one Nine Inch Nails fan in the whole of that stadium because you could see him jumping up and down. He was the only person moving when they were playing. So yeah. it was right at the start of their, uh, their journey. But um, it was it was a good concert. No, Guns N' Roses come on about an hour late. I think it was uh, you know, fashionably late for them to turn up. But yeah, um, had that. Um, I'm sure... Well, I had the, the, the Pearl Jam one and I'm sure... Um, I had the Red Hot Chili Peppers one, but again, I'd have had these on tape, I think, because it's around the, the I, I learned to drive in 1991, so you bought stuff on tape to put in your car. And I, I've kept my vinyls, but I don't I don't have many tapes left, so yeah. And now, and now you're no. to listen to stuff on Spotify, so anyway, let's get back to Nevermind. I found a group on Facebook, a Nevermind fan group, so I put a message out there saying, kind of, did this record change anyone's life? Do you want to share your stories? Tell us what your favourite tracks no, like, are. Bog off, you yeah. <laughs> We're not, we're not making your post like. <laughs> so this morning, I put a post, a similar post on Reddit, thinking, oh, we might get one or two comments. I'll, I'll tell people rig their stuff out. My goodness me! Thank you very much, Reddit forum group uh, members. Really, really. Um, surprised and shocked at all these uh, brilliant messages we've had and, and I, I think we'll do some before we go into the track listings and then we'll, we'll read some more out after um, but I have some really good responses, I'll basically I'll, I'll read out what I put, I just put on there, uh, hello fellow Nirvana enthusiasts, our next podcast episode will cover the album never mind, it'd be great to have some personal stories to share for the episode and we'd love to hear from you no matter how trivial your anecdote or thoughts on the album uh, and we've had some absolutely brilliant responses on there. So uh, I wondered if you guys wanted to uh, read out for me. 
Who wants to go first? You go first, Simon. Does, you've hardly played. Does it does it have to be in order? Does it? Can you pick some out? Because there was a few, wasn't there? there? There was one that was. Uh, I, I saw you've responded to it. Um, it was uh, got someone called Helpful Concert twenty four oh eight, and he put. I was twelve when this came out, and my older brother and I would listen to it incessantly. He passed away two years later, and this album gave me something that I could hold on to, a part of him which still holds true to all these decades later, which was quite sort of poignant. So, obviously, this this, this album means a lot to this guy. Yeah, I think, I think it means a lot to a lot of people, doesn't it? But, um, yeah, to have something that kind of powerful that you can connect to with memories and, you know, music does that to you, doesn't it? Yeah, I do. You know, it absolutely can mean so much to uh, people for, for lots of different reasons. I mean, it's a shame that it's a, a death that it has to on, on, on that. But, yeah, I really appreciate him sharing that. That's amazing. Okay. Do I get to pick my favourite too? You or can, can I just pick a short one? <laughs> <laughs> Go on then. So I like this one. So uh, Dalto 109 uh, changed my life in so many ways. I was born 17 years after it came out. But got me into guitar, maybe get better clothes. Finally gave me some music that I love. Um, favourite track, without a doubt, is Drain You. So energetic and feels like high school, like it physically feels like high school and teenage years in general. I don't know how to explain it, not in an angsty way, but in a happy way. And it's like, it's really interesting that like someone who was born so long, because when you think back to what we were listening to, because I was looking at my old diaries the other day, trying to figure out when stuff happened in my life, because I haven't got... <laughs> got a very clear memory I blanked out a lot of my sort of school days and stuff because it was so traumatic and um we were listening to um really old records like one of the one of the four vinyls that we had on rotation in the sixth form common room um was a kinks album Do you know what I mean? so it's like it's really interesting to see that it's almost like the as things have evolved and moved forward what's taken the place of those kind of classics that we sort of grew up with um, and, and quite cool that it's something that we were so in love with at the time as well. Absolutely, yeah. And there's a lot of references made when people talk about the album and the, the kind of sea change that it brought about on the music scene. They reference hair rock stuff, which I find quite surprising because it was just, I mean, over here for me, there was like, a, there were people that were into that, that kind of, you know, you, you, I don't know, Bon Jovi's Europe, Poison, whatever it was. Um, but they were a bit out on a limb anyway. But there's people kind of saying it kind of killed that off, really. And when you think about it, there wasn't a lot after the after this kind of grunge era where you, you kind of heard that anymore. I mean, it, people still love it, you know. You're always going to have the, the fans that it was part of their thing. But I think there were others reading through some of these comments where they did kind of move from that kind of what they described, I think someone on, on one of these other comments described it as kind of manufactured or um, kind of sound to something so you know real. I was going to say, the thing that I remember being so attractive about it, bearing in mind, although I have recently found out I'm a closet poison fan. No. Was it poison? <laughs> it was poison. <laughs> Which I didn't know. So, you know, like, that was news to me. <laughs> Every rose has its <laughs> but there was the rawness of it 
um, because like coming out of the 80s and everything was so groomed and so kind of perfect and so managed and then like suddenly this kind of and, and I was not polished or groomed <laughs> at all <laughs> so I have to say the whole kind of grunge thing really spoke to me on a very deep-seated level but also just the fact that it was the music was so raw and so energetic and there was so much energy in it and it was so I didn't know at the time I didn't know I was a Poison fan that's just a recent thing so so yeah it just it just it has it had something really different yeah so I'm gonna kind of take one of these comments as well now um this one was from distribution even 8358 thank you distribution uh, and this ties in with just exactly what we we're saying uh you want to call him mr even well it could be it could be a missus so i don't <laughs> so we're just calling this district uh nirvana's nevermind was literally my gateway drug into the alternative indie hardcore punk music scene before listening to bands like wipers sonic youth dwarves government issue butthole surfers sunny day real estate and unwound i listened to do wop classic rock, new wave and hair metal and all that good stuff. But man, it was just not cutting it anymore. None of it had that kick I was really looking for until I heard Nevermind and man, ooh, man. I think it's the man, <laughs> oh, man. Oh, <laughs> come on. Man, ooh, man. <laughs> Three, there's four O's there. I'm giving it an ooh. Man, oh, man. Is this a game changer? It's like my mind just switched over into this darker and harder and better side of music that I thought I would never find myself listening to and finding so much more of this music out there. I was overwhelmed and intoxicated with it. And it kind of felt, and I kind of had to feel bad for the music I listened to before because I knew I would hardly ever hear it again. Nirvana's Nevermind opened my mind to more music, to more harder, heavier, hitting music, and I'm grateful. But those songs on the album are just masterpieces and Kurt Cobain was an artistic genius. Breed still gets me so amped up and I bob my head every time I hear it and synchronise my stomping foot with Dave Grohl's bass drum and pick my imaginary guitar oh, fast on, and hard. Come on, come like on. And sometimes he's, do he's the bass too. He's out the onomatopoeic. Boom, boom. <laughs> after after the... <laughs> Anyway, thank you very much, Mr. or Mrs. Distribution Even. Great comment. Simon, give me another one. Give me another one off the Reddit, please. Um, okay, this one is from Opiate250. Um, he says that Bleach and Nevermind are the two albums that made me love music way back when I was a kid. He's 42 now. Uh, without those albums, I wouldn't be who I am today. Absolutely no doubt about it. So someone else who's, who's got into music through these, um, these the Vaughan and their, their first two albums. So, yeah. Okay. There's quite a lot of guitar players as well uh, in these comments, didn't it? People to take a bit of yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I started playing guitar probably when I was about uh, 16, 17, 18. I, I played a little bit, like had lessons, but never got anywhere with it. But I, my gateway into playing the guitar was the Beatles. Whereas, yeah, as you've said, a lot of people's gateway was was this this album and, and this band. Yeah. Um, so yeah okay go on give me another all right punk's not bread nirvana was my mum's favorite band (laughs) 
this is like what you try to do to our kids yeah. she saw them when she was 17 and she had me three years later so i grew up hearing all of their albums on repeat constantly and watching vhs of live tonight sold out on repeat my entire childhood and somewhere in there an eight-year-old me said this is what i want to do when I was 11, no, when I was 12 or 13, I started learning guitar, really wanted to write songs and play shows. So what do I teach myself first? I spent a long time learning every track off Nevermind. Not only did Nirvana basically teach me how to play guitar, but they gave me a masterclass in songwriting and most importantly, made music feel accessible. That was the whole thing about like, it was all about like being recorded in people's garages in Seattle. Like, do you know what I mean? Instead of in some swanky studio or on a yacht like somewhere um, <laughs> and made music feel accessible unlike what was on radio at the time um, never mind made me realize writing songs and playing shows wasn't just a dream it was something I could do learned all of Nevermind and 13 year, years later I'm still playing a good amount of shows playing in numerous bands writing songs and I still remember how to play all of Nevermind which is pretty fucking cool <laughs> Superb, absolutely brilliant. Uh, <clears throat> okay, we'll, we'll do a couple more uh, and then we'll, we'll move on to the tracks. So the, there's two comments that were kind of tied together here. One from Moore's Waffles, uh, who said, when I, heard it, yeah, when I heard it for the first time in full, I can totally understand how that broke the flood of alternative music in its modern form. So I'm guessing that's someone who's a bit younger and who's heard it kind of in more recent times, could be wrong. Um, and then off the back of that, someone called Mama Fruit 7719 uh, commented, absolutely, it came out at the beginning of my freshman year of high school. In addition to being a phenomenal album, within a few months of its release, it altered the fashion at my very conservative high school, but also codified the subculture of outcasts, giving goths, skaters, metalheads, etc., something to rally around together. And when you add in the fact that they were talking up Black Flag, Flipper, etc., they absolutely exploded my musical taste. So, yeah, it's that thing, isn't it? It wasn't just about the music, it was well, it was kind of there how was they the fashion and, yeah. and like, because before that, they were in the, like, it, to be a goth, it's like bloody hard work, it's high maintenance. <laughs> I wasn't there for that. <laughs> I quite like wearing black. Do you know what I mean? They just, I didn't, whereas as soon as the whole, and kind of alter, alternate grunge thing came in. I was like, yep, holding clothes, tick. <laughs> like, not washing very often, tick. <laughs> like, I was just, I was there for all of it. <laughs> awesome. Give me one more, Simon, and then we'll get into the... Uh, oh, into the right, I'm reading this on my phone, so if I'm looking down, apologise. Um, this one's from uh, Jed Lips. Jedi Lips. Okay, and he's put, I was in already into the alternative scene a bit, as uh, a junior as in junior high school the cure dinosaur junior were my favorite bands and my friends had just discovered pretty hate machine and nothing shocking so we were well on our way but never mind kicked in the door and blew my mind in a way not since disintegration i leaned toward heavier music so never mind was the best of both worlds melodic and thoughtful but still as heavy as f-u-c-k so <laughs> you're so much more polite than me i love it <laughs> <laughs> Right, so yeah, uh, massive thank you again to everyone who replied on Reddit. We'll, we'll try and read a few more of the, these out at the end if, we, if we've got time. But let's get into the, uh, the, the tracks themselves. 
Um, now, Smells Like Teen Spirit was the first song released. It's the first song on the album. It's the only song on the album other than the secret track, which is credited to all three. Uh, I don't think... Uh, I think all the others are Kurt Cobain, and then there's two other tracks that have got co-writing credits. Um, but yeah, so this one was released a month before, never mind. It was released on August the 27th, 1991. Um, they released this unbelievably as what they thought was going to be like a, a taster to the album. And when, when Nirvana first started playing it, apparently um, the members of the band, like Kristen and, and Dave, weren't that enamored by it. And the record company themselves didn't think it'd be the big breakthrough single. They expected that to become As You Are. So they released this first thinking it would be like the one that kind of maybe people heard a little bit of. This was the album, then they'd release the big single. So couldn't have been more wrong, really. Um, it got to number seven in the UK singles charts, number six in the US Billboard Top 100. Um, let's talk about the start. I, this is where I want to bring in my story about Dave Grohl as well. But first question, I guess, can you remember when you, I think it's one of those songs that a lot of people remember when they first heard it. It was that kind of powerful. You? It would have been Thursday Bop. Right. Because that's where I heard all of Nirvana. And it would have been in the indie segment. Because <laughs> <laughs> obviously it was, we were still in that time where you have the indie segment and then you have the pop segment. <laughs> Like, and, um, obviously, once you were once you were committed on the floor for the indie segment, you just stayed because you wrote it out. <laughs> even if you weren't really sure and you hadn't heard it before, you just went with it. Um, so yeah, it would it would have been there. Yeah. <clears throat> but I think that riff as well has become one of the most famous, iconic riffs. It's one of the one of the things that you try and learn playing guitar. It's not that complicated, but you know, jing 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 jing. Uh, just fantastic, and the drumming. This is the, this is the story that I like. There's an interview you can find it on YouTube that um, Dave Grohl did with you know F Pharrell, the guy that does Happy. Pharrell Williams. Pharrell Williams. That's him. You know your stuff as well. <laughs> I mean, I've been like it feels like a hostage situation. <laughs> me. Like, <laughs> well done, Dave. Yeah, so they were talking about drumming in general, and Pharrell makes this comment saying, "You know, I'm, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not like you in terms of drumming. I'm not like a quality drummer." And, and Dave Grohl's like, "People keep saying this about me." He said, "I'm a very basic drummer." And like Pharrell looks at him and like, "What? What are you on about?" You know? And he said, "Look," he said, "Never mind." When I played on Nevermind, he said, "I pinched everything from disco." He said, all the beats were just from disco songs by Cameo, the Gap Band, a guy called Tony Thompson, who was a drummer in Chic. He said, that was it. He said, they were all just basic disco. To be fair, if you're going to pick beats from anywhere, disco is the place to go. Clearly it is. And if you watch the video, there's a clip where he kind of does that bit at the start. I mean, it goes, ding, ding, you know, and, and then it plays a clip of the, uh, a song from disco and it's exactly the same. And Pharrell's just like, Whoa! <laughs> it's a really cool clip. So. so do you remember where you first heard it? 
I do. It was um, with my uh, dodgy ID from Hounslow Borough College. It was at the uh, student <laughs> union night. At, uh, had you, had you changed which number had you changed? Did you no, just like, so, peel the, the little bit of sticky vinyl off and like change it underneath? Or had you done it on that, the top? That, when, when I went to uh, college to register, um, they had the ID forms and you, you, you had to fill in all your details and you had the student ID pass. So um, I obviously saw an opportunity because it had date of birth, birth and you filled that in. And I obviously took a couple of spare forms for me and my friends. And we obviously altered the dates forward a year and uh, used that to get in because at the time that, that, that sort of uh, ID was acceptable. And yeah, we went to, used to go to... Um, I think it was like I say, it could have been indie nights at Brunel University where um, I first heard this on the student union. So yeah, I can I can remember the guitar and, and that yeah, and everyone going mad. Yeah, um, that was the first time I heard it. I can actually uh, some guy who was I was I was at uni as well, but I was in the library, which is not the kind of place where you think you hear it. But some guy had uh, he had a Walkman, and he was like, "Oh, have you heard this?" And I was like, "What is it?" Did you know it? Yeah, yeah, I knew him, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's made it sound like something okay. random no. walked up she went, shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's that good. <laughs> no, it was a guy called Carl, I think, if I remember right, or Carlos. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, he gave me the headphones, and I just remember thinking, wow, this is like different, but this is like awesome, you know. So from that, I think I went out and bought the album just off the, off the strength of that kind of one listen, but it was soon, it was everywhere, wasn't it? Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, absolutely fantastic song, absolutely fantastic. A video as well, uh, brilliant, brilliant video. Again, most of it was Kurt's idea. He liked this idea. Have you seen the video? It's the one where they're in the, the school. Uh, and the story behind the video is um, Kurt picked the guy who, because everyone did like these show reels to send into the record company to kind of, you know, say, pick me to be your video director or whatever and Kirk picked the one that he thought was the worst one because <laughs> he wanted something that wasn't going to be like polished and corporate so the director they got in and he had this idea of kind of uh, being in a school I think it was based on a, a film he'd seen or something where they were playing this, this gig in a school um, but they played a gig a couple of nights before they filmed um, the, the video and they only filmed it like I think two weeks before they released the single. So it obviously didn't take a lot of time to kind of cut together. Um, <clears throat> but they handed out these flyers at this concert they were at because it was near where they were going to record in the film. Uh, and again, you can look online and just like a, you can see the flyer and it says, come and uh, it tells people how to dress, don't wear logos, images, that kind of thing. Um, uh, you might be there for a number of hours, but, but please come along. So they got all these kids to come along to the, the, the video and uh, the video recording. And they were sat there for hours, you know, and, and they were getting a bit fed up and they kept doing all these takes. And, and at the end, Kurt said, like, well, let's just let them go wild. And because they got all this pent up frustration, just being sat there and watching and being quiet. That's where it kind of explodes on the end of the video there. And, uh, it was his idea as well. There's that janitor guy who sings with the, the broom and the cheerleaders and everything. So... He's obviously very, as well as being a, a, a super talented songwriter, good ideas kind of visually and conceptually, you know. Um, so a very, very talented guy, really. Um, do you know where the, the name comes from? It smells like... The deodorant. It's the deodorant, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, but 
bit beyond that, he was he was going out with someone called Toby Vale, who was the drummer in a band called Bikini Kill. Yep. And the lead singer of Bikini Kill, uh, someone called Kathleen Hanna, she wrote some graffiti on, uh, I think it was Kurt's wall, uh, and it said, Kurt smells like teen spirit. So he liked the smells like teen spirit. He didn't know it was a, a deodorant at the time. And the reason why she said he smelled like teen spirit is because it was the deodorant that his girlfriend, Toby Vale, used. And she could smell it on him after they'd been having a bit of hanky-panky, obviously. So... <laughs> Panky, panky. <laughs> Mick goes back to his 70s roots. <laughs> I was trying to think of a nice way of saying, you know, rolling the hair or... Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, have you I... ever rolled in hair? It's not, it's not nice. I have, actually, yeah. Not with another girl, but... <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's a pretty cool story because Kurt had no idea what... Teen Spirit was, he didn't know what it was, there was a deodorant until after the song came out, so apparently... I, well, I just, now I'm just thinking of the, of the song being called Smells Like Lynx. Smells <laughs> <laughs> like Lynx like Africa, yeah. <laughs> it's only a stick deodorant, so it's oh, a female okay. stick deodorant, so, and you can still get it. Oh, so well, what's the female version of Lynx? Uh, I don't know. Impulse? Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you can still buy it. So if you uh, go to your if ever yeah, go to the states again. <laughs> Absolutely right. So um, just one final thing I've got a note of here um, was just around the recording, and, and this is an example of how Butch Vig kind of worked with them. The the harmonies on it that he recorded of uh, Kurt originally were double track vocals. So he'd sing it once, he'd record it. And then he said to him, I, I want to double track your vocals. And, and Kurt was like, no, I want to keep this as simple as possible. I want to keep it as it is. You know, that's the whole idea. We, we need some accessible kind of thing. And the way that that Butch got him to do it in the end, he, he told him, because Kurt was a huge Beatles fan, and in particular John Lennon, and he said to him, John Lennon did it. So that was it. He was in. <laughs> if, if it's good enough for my hero, okay, I'll give it a go. Then he asked um, Dave Grohl to sing harmonies on it. Realised that the voices dovetailed quite nicely together. Double tracked his vocals, put them all together. Did a similar thing with the the guitars. Um, again, Kurt just wanted simple one track uh, on the guitars, and he said, oh, "I'm having a few technical issues. Just try it again with this guitar, that guitar, that effect pedal, and then weaved it all together. And that's how you get the the sound that you get from it. I mean, there's three of them." making this incredible noise, but you know, there's some real good um, production skills in, in use and on, on display there. And it just sounds amazing. Um, one final fact. Oh God, <laughs> you can't resist. Can I can't you? resist, but there's no mention of smells like or things put it in the lyrics. It's another one of those well-known facts, isn't it? But it does mention Nevermind in the song, doesn't it? So there you yes. go. Okay, second uh, track on the album is In Bloom. This was the fourth single released. Uh, it reached number 28 in the UK charts. It didn't chart in the US singles charts. Quite a strong irony in the lyrics on this one because it was um, written about people not understanding the, the underground music scene, really. Uh, it's got the line in it, um, who like their pretty songs, and he likes to sing along and don't know what it means. 
and obviously lots of people sing along to it. <laughs> Uh, I mean, to be fair, everyone will sing along to it, not name white men. Prophetic, yeah, yeah, great track, absolutely brilliant track. The video for this one is one where he's it's kind of the mock um, uh, Ed, Ed Sullivan show type thing where they appear in their suits and they're all kind of quite straight and formal. And, and this was uh, kind of their trying to show their humorous side, really. Um, apparently, it does kind of. Uh, go back this long to their sub pop days and they, they had recorded a, another video so you can find a, a second video online um which was when chad channing was still in the band and it's just kind of them in a gig and like walking around seattle but uh yeah in bloom was the the polished version like it yeah yeah i, like Great. I mean i yeah. <laughs> Go on, you guys. No, no, I'd say there was. A, you look at the, the some of the songs on this album. That, that there's five or six that have, you know everyone knows, which is a, a testament to how many good songs were on this album. Um, and this is one of the, one of the big ones as well, wasn't it? So yeah, yeah. it's very melodic, isn't it? It's got a lot of good hooks yeah. in there, and I think that's synonymous with his his right. If you listen to Bleach, you know it's a lot more kind of rocky, two dimensional, not rocky as in like, but it's still got that kind of grungy sound, but it's it's a lot more kind of full on at your face. There's not as many melodies and hooks in there for sure. And I think he realised that it had got to be a more accessible album and wanted to kind of simplify things and, you know, um, get out there and, and find a bigger audience, which obviously they did. So track three, Come As You Are, uh, this was the one, as I mentioned, that the, the record company were expecting to be absolutely massive. They released this on um, March the 2nd, 1992, so this was the second single released. It reached number nine in the UK singles charts, uh, number 32 in the US one. It's got that kind of, uh, again, one of the most recognisable bass lines in the, in the history of pop, isn't it? This is, this is um, another one that caused them a few legal issues, wasn't it? Well, I don't think it did. It should have done. Yeah. Uh, I know what you're referring to, yeah. Ding, 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 ding. Go on, Simon, say what you're going to No, no, it's just there were two back. Well, was it Killing Joke was the one that they claimed that nicked it off. But if you look at The Damned, Life Goes On, it sounds remarkably similar. It was released before Killing Joke's 80s track that they claimed to have sampled it off. And you listen to them, you can hear it straight away, can't you? You know, so. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's why... Killing Joke didn't sue them because they knew that they'd already nicked it off someone else. Yeah. So well, it is, it is remarkably similar. But uh, I didn't know that until recently. But yeah, love the love the intro, love the bass line. I think the concept for the song apparently is there was um, a, a hotel or a motel in in Aberdeen where Kurt and Chris were from. That their kind of motto was "Come as you are" because it was a bit of a down and out kind of motel and. He, he, he led a bit of a transient life, uh, kept getting, getting kicked out of, of home and lived with his grandparents and stuff. And so every now and again, he had to check into this hotel. Um, but after recording, never mind, he, there's a nice story that he went back to his mum's um, and said to her, you know, do you want to hear some of the new stuff I've got? Uh, and he played a Come As You Are and... Uh, his mum cried, not because she thought how good it was or anything, but she said, just hang on, because this is going to change everything. This is before the album release. She recognised how good it was, you know, so 
I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, and the other nice story that I found about this was now when you, you know, you get those signs when you, you drive into a, a place and it says, welcome to Aberdeen, Washington, whatever. Now it says, welcome to Aberdeen, Washington, come if you are. That's cool. That's really so, cool. That's, uh... Yeah, they've, they've given the nod to the song there. That's amazing. So yeah, cracking, cracking song. I mean, what a start to the album. Three absolute belters off there. And then you're into Breed. Fourth track wasn't released as a single, but it's got a real racing drumming start. Uh, and we're going to do, uh, we do top threes on this podcast, which uh, Case decided is going to be uh, about slacker songs or not giving a monkeys, shall we say. Uh, and the main lyric on this is, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. So this would fit right in there. I'm not going to pick well that was one of my three but um so the other, the only other facts I know about this song was originally it was going to be called Imodium um that they wrote it Imodium, went, Imodium yeah. yeah as in like the <laughs> the pill that you take to stop having the shites because they were on tour with another band I think it was Tad back in the day um and one of the drummer uh, one of the other band mm. members had to take Imodium <laughs> so they wrote a song about it as you do uh, nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's uh, someone described it as the anthem for the apathetic, and uh, Rolling Stone ranked this at number four on their ranking of 102 Nirvana songs. So pretty high up. Uh, good song. Uh, it's not as melodic as the, the first three, but yeah, very good song. Any thoughts? Or anything? No. Oh, I quite yeah. like it. Wasn't one of my favourites from the album, so. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Right. So I was all about the singles and the dancing in the Thursday half. I'm afraid. <laughs> I was just. <laughs> no, that's fine. Well, you, you'll be right up with this one then. So track five is Lithium. So this was the uh, the third single released released in July '92. It got to number eleven in the UK charts, number sixty four in the US charts, and a uh, uh, shout out to Finland where it got to number one. Hey. Big up Finland. <laughs> Our huge Finnish audience. Very <laughs> excited by that. <laughs> Yes, yeah. So the the titles are nod to um, the drug that was used pre Prozac days. What can you tell us about lithium? What do you think to the song? Uh, it, it's, it's a really good one because it's sort. Of, I almost sort of think it's like half volume, full volume. It goes, doesn't it? Quite rocky. Then it goes down to the sort of the, the, the sort of uh, quite melodic sort of melody sort of um, playover. Yeah. So it, it is one of the best ones on the album, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, and another one of their their sort of well known tracks. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I really like this one. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. It was uh, a song that he wrote uh, about a friend of his, but he, he also apparently had a little uh, time of his life where he turned to Christianity, but then decided it, it wasn't really for him. But he kind of understood that for some people it did make a difference. Uh, this this friend of his turned to God when his girlfriend died, um, and so it was kind of like in religion to lithium in terms of the fact that it would kind of chill you out, soothe the, the rough edges off and, and kind of make you happy. So that's the the, the lyrics there, I'm so happy. Uh, now, a year before they released it, there was uh, the aforementioned Soundgarden were at one of Nevermind's gigs in Seattle. And the, uh, I think she was the singer, Kim Thale, I think that's how you say it. Uh, kind of said that it really stuck in her head this song when she heard it and she mentioned it to Ben, he was the bass player in, in Soundgarden and he said, yeah, yeah, that's the hit, that's going to get them into the top four. Yeah. 
So, you know, it was recognised early on. It was a, a good song. Um, they did have a few problems recording this one. Um, in the studio, they couldn't quite get the timings right. So, in frustration, this is where the uh, the endless, nameless track, the, the hidden track, uh, was born out of because apparently Butch Vig kept the tape running after they'd kind of tried several times to get it right and couldn't. And it's kind of a bit of a... Um, a jam, isn't it? That endless, nameless track. Um, so that's what happened with that. And when he, when he, when he, he kind of said, "Take a break, let's come back in an hour, whatever." They did that kind of bit of a jam. Came back in and he got Dave Grohl to play to a, a, a metronome, uh, and the result resolved the timings. He said, "Oh, just drum it a bit simpler," and and that's how they got to the final cut on on lithium. Uh, track six, then Polly. So this is the one that finishes side one. Before we go into what the song's about, is this the best side one in the history of pop? It's got to be close. Certainly out there, isn't it? Certainly out there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Polly, uh, this is the one where um, it's an older song of theirs. It dates back to about 87 and, and Kurt wrote it about a true story. Uh, a 14-year-old girl that got abducted at a, a rock concert. And uh, the story is told from the, or the, the narration in the song is told from the, the perpetrator's point of view. And uh, apparently he, he kind of really hooked onto this story because the, the, the way that the girl got away was that she uh, empathised with a, a captor uh, and kind of tricked him into thinking that you know, she now liked him, uh, and that's how she got away and got caught. So I kind of uh, stuck with him that story, and, and that's how the song was um, founded. Uh, quite a few people said it, it kind of supports his his very strong advocate of feminism and uh, women's rights, and you know, said that this song kind of speaks loudly about that. But it's really, really good song as well. It's a bit more acoustic in it, a bit, yeah. a bit quieter, but yeah. very powerful song. Especially when you know the, the story behind it. Um, anything to add, Simon? You look like you were. No, no, no. Say so, that, that's what I knew about it. it was, a, was it guy Gerald Friend was his name? Because I, I always remember thinking I should have dropped the R out of his surname, given what he did, and uh, it probably had a proper description for him. So, yeah, uh, but I, I remember reading it. She'd escaped when he pulled in a get more petrol or something at a petrol station managed to escape that's from what what i remember about the the, sort of the background to the song basically yeah. yeah yeah it must have been an absolutely terrifying experience so on strength of character to kind of do what you have to do to survive and escape phenomenal uh kate that is not a single <laughs> I'm really sorry. So I, oh, I, no. I can't come to you now for the rest of the songs because no more singles. Yeah. <laughs> I did listen to the album like a lot. Yeah. And I did really enjoy it as an album. Yeah. But I was very much like, I've never heard this album before as an album. So, so yeah, I'm out now. I might just, I might just snip to the loo. <laughs> <laughs> I did listen to it a lot when I got it, a hell of a lot. I know I did because. I've listened to it about probably two or three times over the last kind of 15 years, but not often. But I think you, you remember you, you've listened to an album a lot when one song finishes and you know exactly yeah. what's coming next. I mean, that, that, that starting of that yeah. next song, it's just automatically plays in your head, doesn't it? And, I, and 
obviously I had the CV, CD version, so I didn't have the two side thing. So when Polly finishes and it goes into that, I think it's Kurt who's kind of doing that first intro for Territorial Pissings. Come on, people now, smile on your brother. <laughs> Everybody get together, try to love one another right now. And it goes, so that song is, uh, I gotta find a way, better way. Yeah. Recognize it? <laughs> no. <laughs> I do, but not. I recognize it from now, not then. Yeah. So, so it's a. Go on, I sorry, sorry. Just obviously, we were talking about with the we jump with CDs and that, and in the old days when you obviously vinyl and, and car tapes, they, they was like these were the ones you'd start classing as the hidden gems that you would have not necessarily listened to, but there was like territorial pisses, stay away. Oh, uh, was it on a plane as well? I think the other ones that make this 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 um, side up, all great songs that you, you possibly because they weren't released as singles as Kate said, you might have missed unless you you actually sat down and listened to the album in its entirety. Entirety. See, I was I was proper album mad, as in like, even if there were songs I didn't like, yeah. I was a purist. You've got to listen to the whole thing, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. So very, very rare. I'm just just a bit like that, just a bit anal. But uh, yeah, it's no hooky melody on this one. Very up tempo, uh, and there's a, a very famous line in there. Just because you're paranoid, don't mean they're not after yeah. you. Which I don't know whether have they nicked that from somewhere else or I don't know but I remember obviously that with Kurt Gawain with his, his, his mental health issues and stuff like that that was a quite poignant sort of line for him wasn't it yeah absolutely absolutely so yeah a bit of a rip roaring start to uh, side two if you've got the vinyl and then you're on to uh, Drain You yeah. uh, which was about his relationship with Toby the aforementioned Toby Vale from Bikini Kill um, and the song starts uh one baby says to another, one baby says to another, I, can't, I can never get this scanning right. I'm lucky to have met you. Um, so that's apparently what she used to say to him. Um, but then, obviously, as things unwound in their relationship, uh, he felt that she was kind of draining him. So that was uh, the reference to Drain You. But a very, very good song. I think a couple of people did mention that as their favourite on the, the Reddit chat, actually. Right. Um, this next song, can one of you please have a look on the Reddit? Uh, there's a there's a comment from someone called uh, Madghoul779. Uh, <clears throat> I don't think we've read this one out. And uh, they mentioned Lounge Act as their favourite song on the album. So this is the one that kind of starts with, it sounds like he's... He's kind of dying or gurgling off. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, another song about Tony Vale. And uh, apparently this must have been a bit nicer about her because he wouldn't play it when Courtney Love, who obviously went on to uh, marry. Did he marry her or did he just date her? I think they got married. They married, didn't they? I believe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, when, when she came to shows anyway, he wouldn't play this song, so... Track 10, Stay Away. So this is the one that starts, monkey see, monkey do. Na, 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 na. Oh, he's got it in there. Uh, and then I don't know why in brackets. And I think this is a reference to Kurt saying say kind of thing. I, I don't know why I put up with it. And it, the song's all about stuff that Kurt didn't like. I think that's a fairly long list. But um, macho guys, mass media attention and speculation, all that kind of stuff. So... Uh, very relatable song, really. Um, good one, though. Good one. And then track 11, we've got On a Plane. 
Uh, noticeable this one that is very different to the version that appeared on the unplugged um, record that they did for, for MTV, which has got the, the, the cello in there. Um, just so you know which song it is, Kate, it's the one that goes, I love you. Sorry, I love myself better than you. Know that it's wrong, so what should I do? I mean, our track record of me recognising songs from you singing is not, it's not flawless. I'm on a plane. <laughs> so, yeah, apparently this one is about uh, drug taking and the highs of drug taking. So that's as much as I know on this one. Anything to add on that one, side? No, no. So another, I say there's three on the on the second net, uh, side that I classed as sort of a hidden gems, territorial pissing, stay away. And, and this was the, the third one on a plane. I think they, these were really good songs. Yeah, absolutely. And then <clears throat> closing out uh, on the credited album, tracks number 12, Something in the Way. This is, uh, I, I know this is a favourite of a lot of people. Um, they brought a guy called Kurt Cannon in to play the, again, to play the cello. I don't know whether it's the same guy that played on the, the Unplugged, but uh, yeah, it's kind of a, a spooky track. It comes right down, very slow. Mellow, um, yeah, very mellow, yeah, I think. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful track. Uh, this was recorded apparently with um, Kurt lying on a, um, I don't know, he's on a, a sofa in the recording studio. They just wanted to try and get a different sound from it. So Butch Big brought a, a mic over and said, there, there, sing it there. And uh, so that's how they did the, the recording of him doing the vocals, lying, lying down, chilling out. Oh, right. And uh, apparently Kurt was stood over uh, Dave Grohl when he was playing the drums. And he kept saying to him, quieter, quieter, play quieter. <laughs> so yeah, you can really hear it in the recording. It's uh, effective from it through its quietness. It made me think of, uh, is it Oliver Stone, where uh, they were um, got Jim Morrison to sing a song while he was uh, having fellatio performed on him in the in the studio <laughs> to get get something different in his voice. <laughs> I don't know why that just jumps out. So. Yeah, I try to use avoid using crass language as well. So polite. <laughs> We're in the presence of a lady. Exactly. I'm not sure where she is, but okay. <laughs> Go on then, read it. Read it out. We found a comment about uh, lounge act. Found a comment about lounge act. Lounge act. So it was the Mad Gull seven seven nine. He says it was my introduction to grunge and alt rock, which are now my favourite genres. And it was the best introduction I could have heard. The whole album has stuck with me since, and my favourite track would be Lounge Act. Uh, yeah, so something in the way, what's it about? Well, um, the lyric is, underneath the bridge it starts, and, and a lot of people kind of say it's about Kurt getting kicked out of, of home and having to go and live under the bridge. That's not true, apparently. Um, it's more to do with... Um, being discarded by those around you and kind of made to feel as though you're a burden. Very personal song um, for Kurt. Uh, and a, a, I would say a, a, a fitting way to finish the album. But, but there's an annoying secret track. <laughs> Who think it was annoying? <laughs> that would be me. Why? Why do you think oh, it's annoying? Because I just think secret tracks are annoying. Just put them on the list, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> But it was something different, wasn't it? It was something different. But yeah, uh, the, the secret track is called Endless Nameless. And the, sto the good story behind this one is on the original pressings of the album, 
that it didn't have the secret track. Uh, the guy who was mastering the recordings, they were supposed Agreed to meet. With me. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. They were supposed to meet to kind of just go over the, you know, which bits they were going to use and save and everything. Anyway, as he was listening to all the tracks, not everyone turned up and he thought, what is this? Because obviously this was a bit where they ran on from lithium and he, he just didn't bother putting it on because he thought it was loaded. Absolutely fair. I'm with I'm, I'm with you, Kate, as well. This is my least favourite album uh, track on the album, to be honest, as well. Yeah, I'd agree. Apart from there's like twenty seconds, and it's God. two bits in it, which are the best bits on the album. There's like a bit of bass in there and a bit of melodic kind of guitar and drums, and it's just oh, it feels like it could be the genesis of like the greatest song of all time, but. It forms so small a part of the song. It's, a, it's not such a already shame. Already been written by that other band. What are they called? <laughs> Tenacious D. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is that. Uh, and I, and I, I have told this story before, but this is the song that nearly gave me a bloody heart attack. Literally, I was playing on a computer game, Simon, a football manager, something like that, and because. As you do with Nirvana's Nevermind, it's on loud, isn't it? You've got it on loud, you're concentrating on your game. Don't realise it's finished because I'm kind of concentrating on the game. Or it's finished, I don't want to go off and put something else on. You're like looking at me like I'm going to agree. Yeah, yeah, I felt like that often. No, (coughs) you're on your own. It's a teenage boy, didn't have a girlfriend vibe. (laughs) Well, I fit the profile. Guilty as charged. Yeah, so I'm sat there playing on this game, uh, football manager, whatever it was, and all of a sudden this song starts. Honestly, I have never jumped so much in my life. Not even that scene in Jaws where the body swings. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was the moment where I thought I was going to die. Oh, God. So, yeah. Death by Nirvana, there you go. <laughs> it was almost Death by Nirvana. Absolutely. You really said banana. I did. <laughs> banana. Oh, right. So um, I want to go back and just do a few more of these Reddit Reddit chats. This is my favourite comment. I'm a bot. If you want to send feedback, please comment below. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> it was just me that brain wasn't engaged before. Yeah, right. I'm going to. No, no, this is the best comment. Right, here we go. In the spirit of grunge, I mean, because of Nevermind, I started playing guitar. So, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that that just. That's from Pretend AD 5920. And they couldn't even be asked to write because I'm fully there for that. <laughs> All right, good break. I've gone for one from Just J613. And I've gone for this one because Just J. Could be a girl, could be a boy. Was also 19. We were 19 when this album came out. So the comment is, I was 19 when it dropped. I'd never seen Nirvana previously on... uh, Sorry, I had seen Nirvana previously on one of the rounds with Bleach. While I did like Bleach a lot, it was in line with lots of other music. At that time, the radio was dominated by hair bands, if you wanted anything rock-like. I would listen to it instead of the pop garbage on every other station. Then it happened. I don't recall the date, but I know exactly where I was. And what I was doing when Teen Spirit came out of the radio, I was working, delivering stuff and driving at the time. I was working with my best friend and we just kind of looked at each other. We were just pulling into the place to deliver. 
can see it crystal clear to this day. And we're just sat in a truck, hanging off every beat. Did Nevermind change my life? Not so sure, but Kurt did. There was finally someone I could relate to. The music felt legitimate compared to all the hairband crap that sounded fake and staged. It was a great time to be alive. And I was the right age, in my mind, for it to really hit hard. Thank you very much, Just Jay. I'd echo that. Great comment. Simon, have you found another one that we haven't already read? There is. There's one from Boylons. I'll, I'll, I'll give this a synopsis because it's quite a long one, but it, this, this person's gone quite a musical journey. Because they say at the time they were listening to Vanilla Ice, MC Hammer and CNC Music Factory, which I didn't think I'd seen a discussion about Nirvana, never mind. <laughs> uh, and they progressed from that to Public Enemy, NWNIST, but then they've jumped across to uh, the Stone Temple Pilots and Nevermind. So that, that's a quite, a quite a musical journey. That's, that's something I'd do on my YouTube roulette sessions i i put a song on and they suggest it and i i go from wendy reno after the laughter to i don't know the stone roses or something like that so yeah that's a quite a, quite a jump around that is <laughs> okay uh and then last one we'll go for was from livid bag 4374 who said when i was 29 or i was 29 when nevermind dropped i'm sandwiched between generations nevermind single-handedly pulled me into the world of grunge alt rock and Gen X culture in general. Strauss and Howe, as well as Copeland, define me within the Gen X cohort, while others relegate me to Boomer John. <laughs> I don't care where I land based upon my age. The best music was in the 90s and early 2000s, and for me, it all started, but never mind. There you go. I need you to tell me your favourite track off the album. I'm keeping it short and simple. No. I'll start. I'll start. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm. Normally, I don't go for the kind of obvious one, but on this one, I have to say, "Smells Like Teen Spirit" for me is, it's the catalyst for the album. It starts it off. It's the thing that started everything, and it still sounds freaking awesome. So that is my choice. I am nailing my colours to that. Uh, "Smells Like Teen Spirit" must. Simon, uh, I like Polly for me. That being my pick of the album. Polly. Yeah. Very good. Okay. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be totally normal for a change. It's a lithium for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no weird picks today. Very good. Very good. Okay. So, um, as you've listened back, then you didn't listen to it. So I can't really ask you this question. You did listen to it. Listen to it about five or six no, times. I mean, back in the day, you didn't oh, listen right. to it as an okay. album. So I was going to ask the other question. I was going to ask is, do you feel any different about it now compared to when you listened to it back then? What do you think, Simon? Yeah, I say it stood the test of time, hasn't it? it uh, they, they, a lot of those tracks they could have been released today, and they'd still sound s- s- fresh, wouldn't they? I think that's a, they've not they've not dated, have they? No, no, I, I'd 100% agree with that. And, and the other thing for me is that, and I'm finding this with a, a lot of the songs, uh, sorry, a lot of the albums that we, we're doing on the podcast, I'm giving them different ears because lyrics, as I've mentioned loads of times before, is not really my thing. If the melody's good, if the, the sound's good, if it's the right instrument, the right voice, I'm with it. So it's, I didn't know what half, the, like most of these songs were about. You know, I had not got a clue, so... You know, he's, um, I've got a little bit more, even more admiration for Kurt than what I had. You know, some really good, poignant songs in there and some some good messages and some good lyrics. So that's the biggest thing for me. Um, 
we do need to rate this album. So, have you got your mark out of 10 ready, Kate? I do, yes. Wow, we'll come to you last. Seeing as you're <laughs> always the lowest marker. I'm just harsh. You are harsh. Good thing. Simon, <clears throat> as our guest, you may go first. What are you going to score it out? I'm, I'm going to mark this quite high purely because the amount of quality tracks on it. So, I'm, I'm thinking about eight and a half, nine for me. Which one? Come on. Nail, nail, nail your I mean, Simon, I don't allow half points. Okay. So you, you, you have to choose. You are allowed a half point. I, I'll, I'll stick with eight and a half. I'll stick with eight and a half. Eight and a half, right. Just because Kate said... Very good. Well, I'm good. Just because Kate said I couldn't have a half point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go I'm going to go one whole mark higher than that. I'm going to I'm going to give it a nine and a half. Personally, I'll give it a nine, but because of everything that it means, the way it changed music, the way it changed culture, the fact that it is what it is, it was just like the perfect storm. Mm. You know, you, you've got the concepts of it, you've got the band, you've got the movement, you've got the music, you've got Kurt. It's just never going to be forgotten. So gets an extra half, nine and a half I've gone for. Okay, I'm going to go for eight. Not eight and a half. Uh, not eight and a half <laughs> because we don't do halves. So <laughs> I don't do halves. Okay. Um, because I, I, I must have heard it. I must have heard the album played at the time. Yeah. Um, but I don't remember it as an album at the time. But listening to it over the last like week like sandwiched in between all the other things I had to do this week. Um, it still stood up as, as a really good album and it's still, and it started to grow on me more as well, like outside with the songs that I already knew and really liked. Um, so yeah, solid eight. I'm impressed. Mm. Well, high marks in me. So while we're on the subject of high marks, have you finally oh. managed to listen to Modern Life is Rubbish again? Yeah, I'm not keen. Right, we'll, we'll, six. We'll, 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 we'll swiftly move on. <laughs> it's a six. I honestly, I kept like just drifting off. I was working. My work is more interesting than modern life is rubbish. <laughs> oh, you just, you've got to give it your full attention. You can't give it a six. Oh, so six. God. I'm not, and I'm spending no more time on this. That bit, it's done. Line drawn. <laughs> oh, we mentioned in modern life is rubbish because this is a hangover from two episodes ago where we, uh, Covered the album and Kate hadn't listened to it other than twice. <laughs> and quite rightly, I feel that she could rate on two listenings. But, uh, the amount of homework that I get given is just overwhelming. Oh, yeah, listen to a record. Ooh, challenging. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that must be an album that you had, Simon, or listened yeah, to. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember going to see Blur as well. I can't remember if it was on the back end of that, that album. When was that? Was I went to see them. I think it was about 95 I went to see them. Yeah. So, so 94 was part of life, 95 was um, Great Escape. They were doing a read Great Escape. Yeah. What we talked about here, all the, the, the filler songs on this album being really good. A little bit with Kate on that. There's, there's some good songs with Blow, and there's some pretty average songs on their albums as well, I think. Apart from Park Life. All killer, no filler on there. All killer, no filler. 
Anyway, this is not about Blur. This has been Nirvana's <laughs> Nevermind, and it scores an impressive 17.5 out of 20. Sorry we can't include yours because we, we've... Not a problem. ...kind of marked everything else out of 20, so we can't suddenly start marking out of 30. Go on, we could well, do an could average. Do some sort of mathematical average. We could, but it wouldn't make that much difference, <laughs> would it? Really? You wouldn't have a half point in your scoring if you'd uh, included my score. That's uh, that's all I'll say. <laughs> it's a good score. It'll put it in the top five or six songs that we've uh, the albums we covered. Still winning, I think, is Disintegration by The Cure. If you want to go back and listen to any of those episodes, please do so. Um, we are just going to finish off. We're not going to do what was happening in the UK at the time. Sorry if you did all that homework, Simon, and listened to all them songs and singles that were around at the time. And, uh, not too well. Yeah, I will mention that the, I don't know why this is sticking with me, but the number 10 album at the time that Nevermind was released was Joseph and his technical drink coat. Yeah. <laughs> and I mentioned that, Simon, because Kate's about to be in a production of it and she is absolutely loving it. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really not loving it. <laughs> so, no, what you did the homework. I did not do the homework. So what was your favourite album out of the top ten albums that were from this? Um, are we the ones that were actually in the charts the, the day this was released? Yeah. yeah so you've got you've got Jason Donovan's greatest hits, Billy Bragg's Don't Try This At Home, Mr. Lucky by John Lee Hooker, Out of Time, Paul Young, uh, R.E.M. Uh, Paul Young's Singles Collection, Ultimate Collection, Mark Bolan, On Every Street by Dire Straits, and then the top two were Usual like Illusion 1 and 2. Multiples of multiples in there. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm guessing it was one of the top two, Guns and Roses. So yeah, yeah, Guns and Roses was one better yeah, than had, the other. Um, they were good tracks on both of them. Um, whatever one had Civil War on, I think that was Usual Illusion too. That was probably my favourite. So okay, oh okay. The top ten. What was your favourite single out of the top ten? Top ten singles. Singles, come on, refresh my. Just about to beat them out to you. So. Okay, so we've got uh, <laughs> Jesus to a Child, George Michael, One by One, Sure, I Want to Be a Hippie. By oh, Tim that was my favourite. <laughs> Actually, you know what? That's the wrong one. Though. That's the wrong one. This is 96. I've got the wrong chart up. <laughs> wasn't, this, wasn't this the year that uh, Brian Adams and that dreadful song was at number one for what's yes. in an attorney? I can tell you what wasn't my favourite single in the tracks, uh, the charts that, that week. It definitely wasn't that. That's a... <laughs> Yeah, that was that brings back some painful memories listening to that song or hearing that song. That was that was so weird. I think that was what really put like a, a nail in the coffin of the charts yeah. for me. Like I was already not really listening to the charts and and desperately like watching the chart show on a Saturday morning in the hope that it would be indie chart week. Um, <laughs> but it just finished it like that that whole time where it just didn't change for so long it was ridiculous wasn't it yeah there was i think there was it was um it was number one for 16 i think was it sunshine and rainy day by zoe was in there um oceanic insanity oh, I think I they were like there. That, uh, there was some there was there was a real mix of, yeah so i just remember that being number one for about 16 weeks and yeah yeah wishing it just end <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
job. I had a job in. I just come out from training college. And I had a job in a warehouse, putting power in over that summer. And obviously, being the apprentice, I didn't have any say on what was on the radio. And the guy that was leading the job, he, he had Capital Radio on all day, every day. And I must have heard that song about five times a day for weeks. Say, there were no no repeat guarantees then, were there? Yeah, no, <laughs> no, there, there wasn't. <laughs> yeah, but I, I say that that and Zoe Sunshine Radio. I think the other one was um, what was the other one that was a Cola Boy Seven Ways to Cola Boy Seven Ways to Love was the other, not on Capital Radio. I don't think they were playing that on Capital Radio, Nirvana. So. <laughs> Was was Rosala? Was that one of them? Yeah, everybody's uh, free, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 that was one of them. And there's a lot of rave stuff around at that time, yeah. wasn't which really wasn't my yeah my scene. We'll finish off with our top threes. Kate, introduce the top threes. Have you got yours ready? No, of course I haven't. Really. I've got four. I've got two. Just... So we're, we're even then. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd do four because I. I I mentioned you I no, I mentioned this to Simon. We had a quick chat on Wednesday night. And the first one that he came off the top of his head, that was gonna be my one. So I was like, as soon as he said what you'd said, I was just like, oh, nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Rick was all like, like, oh, let's do Nirvana. Let's do the happiest songs you've ever. And I'm like, oh, seriously, it's a slacker band, like it's grunge. Why are we doing that? It's like, let's do like songs about not caring about stuff never mind so he came round to my way of thinking obviously <laughs> obviously right so i'll pick as your number three then seeing as you don't have a number three the great song of indifference by bob geldof i've never heard of it but okay that was one of my picks well, as well. That, that was, uh, yeah, <laughs> that was a great song <laughs> It is a good song. It is a good song. <laughs> Simon, go on. You you get your other two out. Oh no, no. I, uh, obviously, I, the one I mentioned he was Liam Lynch, uh, United States of whatever, uh, was was probably my yeah. number one. Um, there's a couple there, isn't there? There's like Transition Vamp, Baby, I don't care. I suppose you could sort of pretty vague. Yeah, that, was, that was mine. That was one of mine. Transition Vamp. Go on, Sex Pistols. Which pretty one? vacant. Yeah, qualify. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well. You're in charge. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you think. Will. So go on, what were your other two? My, well, Transition Vamp was number two, and my number one was Lazy by Bruno Mars. <laughs> How does it go? But there's, but oh, I know that song. I didn't get a chance to search for my third one, actually, and I've just remembered what it is. Go on. Um, you will know it. Okay. You will know the Bruno Mars. Right. Bruno, apparently I will know <clears> it. <throat> Right, I'll give you my uh, my top three while you're looking. Oh, Afro man, because I got high. <laughs> that was my number three. <laughs> Probably should be the number one, really, shouldn't it? What's that? I don't even know it. <laughs> I would recommend that you go and listen to it. Sing it, me. Uh, well, basically, the chorus is, because I got high. <laughs> <laughs> does he sing in a right deep voice? Basically, he, he does, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that one. Okay. Well, I've gone for uh, I Don't Care by Dan Donnelly at number three. Uh, Dan Donnelly, who was on one of our previous episodes, uh, talking about his absolutely brilliant album, Country in Northern. If you haven't heard that episode, I don't, I don't think you listened to that one, Simon. 
Honestly, he's great value. I, I mean, I don't know how he knows that, but I'm now slightly scared about the level of analytics he's got. <laughs> we, had, we had a chat about it. Okay. I'm not that, I'm not that big with a crikey O'Reilly. Uh, yeah, great song, I Don't, I Don't Care, by Dan Donnelly. And it might be quite the opportunity to say at this point that Dan Donnelly and his wife also run a podcast, which you mentioned before, called Now That's What I Call Bullshit. And we are going to be appearing on their podcast uh, soon. So we're recording that in this forthcoming week. I don't know how long it takes them to get episodes out, but looking forward to that. No, so I mean, even more bloody homework <laughs> I had to do. And then I was like, I actually did their homework because I was just like, shit, they're a real podcast. <laughs> <laughs> not, just, not just Rick's podcast where I could just be like, yeah, whatever. Well, I'll just Google it while we're sat here. When someone comes up to you in the pub and says to you, hey, hey, Crouchy, that podcast of yours, it's right good. That made me feel like I got a real podcast. Did you feel like you were famous? Not really, because it was someone I knew, but, you know, I only knew him a little bit, so that was quite cool. Anyway, back to the uh, the songs of indifference or whatever. Number two has got to be Always Look on the Bright Side of Life from Monty Python. How is that indifference? Read the lyrics. When life's a piece of shit, yeah. na, 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 na. you've you, always got to look on the bright you side. Perky, you are not getting this, are you? <laughs> yeah, but the sentiment's like, don't worry about it, just kind of be happy. I mean, basically, Simon, you just you just peaked with the Liam Lynch suggestion. Oh, <laughs> well, you were never so. going to be. Anyway, my number one, it's got to be my old mate Taylor Swift, hasn't it? God. Shake it off, shake it off. <laughs> <laughs> Love that song. Oh, he really does. Love that song as well. <laughs> if I realised cheery ones really, I'd have probably gone for Eddie and the Hot Rods, Do What You Want to Do, I suppose. You could have... A... There you go. There you go. I mean, just he just had hold of the wrong end of the stick properly. <laughs> you were there. He was not there. <laughs> I always get the wrong end of the stick. Listen, it's been an absolute blast. I loved covering this album. Uh, thank you, Simon, for giving up two hours of your life. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. We really appreciate and it. And my God, people, if you've made it this far, well done. <laughs> That's all I can say. Absolutely. You there might deserve a trophy. There might be some hardcore fans out there, not of this podcast of Nirvana, that have kind of listened to, listened to most of it. And I have to do a massive thanks to everybody that kind of put a message. Whether we've read you out or not, we do appreciate every comment you put on that. that we did read the book, even read if we didn't read them out. Yeah. So, um, and we will put a link to that. Um, those uh, comments and that post in Reddit within the show notes. All I've got left to do really is to uh, usual thanks for listening. And please give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Definitely can do that these days on uh, Spotify if you look at the Spotify listener and also whatever the Apple one is, Apple Podcasts. I always forget that. Um, you'll find all our links in the show notes to our social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, uh, and that's as much as we can manage. And oh. still no one sent us an email. <laughs> Jeez, people, come on. <laughs> yeah, we do have an email, but we don't need email now. We've got Reddit. Everyone just responds on Reddit. It's my new favourite friend. Uh, and the next episode uh, could be 
a little while because Kate is going to be busy with uh, mega production of Joseph and the Technical Dreamcoat. I'm literally in the chorus. <laughs> I know, but you're, you're kind of on it, aren't you, into July. So, and yeah. it's going to take me a little while to research the next episode because it is, we're going back to your friend, our most listened to episode, Mark Armand. We are mining the Mark Armand gravy train. <laughs> and it's going to be Mark and the Mambas. Torment and Torment. Oh, that's one of my favourite albums. Okay. So we're finally going to get a high mark from Kate's Heineken. <laughs> Thanks again for sticking with us. We really do appreciate it and we hope that uh, you can join us on the next episode. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.